Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, Episode 4, where we're traveling to 1946 and the fourth winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Leo Sowerby, for Canticle of the Sun for Chorus and Orchestra, based on Matthew Arnold's translation of a canticle by St. Francis. So Dave, this is the big million-dollar question. We start every time asking, what's your experience with Leo Sowerby? Well, that's uh, about where my experience about, is. With yeah, Leo yeah, not well, not a lot of experience. Uh, I have to be honest here. Uh, I grew up in the Chicago area, so I remember hearing the name Leo Sowerby mm-hmm. because he lived in Chicago for a very long time and was associated with churches and mm-hmm. kind of organ music, is what I remember. But have I ever listened to? Anything by Leo Sowerby, that would be a no. Well, you're a step ahead of me. Until we started doing this podcast, it was one of those, you know, I'd see the list of the Pulitzer Prizes and go Leo Sowerby and keep going to Charles Ives. (laughs) I just kind of skipped over because it wasn't a name that had any resonance with me at all. Right. Do you think it's because as we've, you know, Sowerby is known as a religious Mm -hmm. composer or someone who wrote for choirs, organ, and it's a certain type of tradition that is not in the main public we don't hear in concert yeah halls, i think that's got to be it i mean if you look at we'll talk a little bit about his life and what he did and he did, he was an important composer in the 20s and 30s and people knew who he was but yeah. after that point and really to the rest of his life he was um pretty much focused on writing organ music writing anthems writing sacred music so he was very well uh, esteemed in that world and uh, you know since we've been kind of looking at this for the past couple of weeks getting ready for this episode we both run across people in the church music world who go oh leo sowerby is one of my favorite composers yeah, and we're yeah. like how can that be we've never heard of this guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah very popular and this piece this piece is uh quite in that style, I'd mm-hmm. say it's very Anglican sounding yeah. and very kind of of the of the time. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, well, and that is what uh, Sowerby spent most of his life as. Um, so, in um, 1927, he became the organist. He's 32 years old. Became the organist at St. James in um, Chicago, and he stayed at that post for 35 years. Wow, it's kind of like a messian. It is a messian-like and, story. Yeah, and Ives, all these. It's, it's being a church musician is a good gig because it's regular every week. You've got something, and as long as the church stays in business, you've got a pretty good, solid job. And you have an, an ensemble right there to practice right, with, and a, a congregation to to work with. So uh, he also was pretty distinguished by winning the Rome Prize. He right? was the first American, uh, first winner of the American Prix de Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little bit of a twist there. This is my favorite part of this story, uh, is that he was the first recipient. He wasn't the first winner mm. because when they did the competition, they said, well, no one really is up to the level of winning with a piece, but this guy deserves something. And so he was the first to actually get to go to Rome. Hmm. The first winner was Howard Hansen, who came the very next year, and, and that became a, a lifelong friendship between the two of them. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I can see some affinities there when we start talking about the music itself. Uh, so... 
other biographical details of interest? Uh, well, the one thing that really kind of stuck out to me is, you know, we've been talking, he's a church musician, he's an organist. Um, in the late 1920s, he was actually invited to write uh, what Paul Whiteman called two classic jazz numbers for the <laughs> Paul Whiteman Orchestra. <laughs> so this is the time. <laughs> I, I can't imagine what those sounded like. <laughs> well, the best is uh, one of the works is called uh, Monotony. <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> Uh, but that's because there was a, a six and a half foot high metronome, uh, an instrument in the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. And so he was writing for that instrument and that became the name. But this was the thing in the late 1920s. Yeah. Composers writing jazzy orchestral works. And Paul Whiteman, of course, he was the one who had uh, the commission for the Rhapsody in Blue right. by George Gershwin. So this is just, you know, part of a series. It's just none of them are as good as the Gershwin. And so no. they, don't, they don't survive till today. And I just, I find that hard to believe if on the little I know of... Sowerby's music, I, I can imagine it's probably the squarest sounding jazz that you could ever find. I, it just, I don't know, unless he was a secret hipster. An Anglican playing jazz. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Teaching at a, or a, yeah, teaching, substituting organists at Episcopal churches and, yeah. uh, it, yeah, very, and even revised the, uh, Episcopal church hymnal and hymn yeah. tunes and all of that. Uh, also he was in World War One and received a uh, master of music from American conservatory where he also taught for quite a while How many years. Uh, and yeah, I was just very involved in that whole tradition. So, well, even got, we talked when we discussed um, a few episodes ago and we were talking about um, the Eastman school of music mm -hmm. and all the work that Howard Hansen did there. Uh, Sauer, we got an honorary doctorate of music from the Eastman school. So we can begin to see these kinds of connections that he was evidently super connected with, um, the composers who up until this point had been winning the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. So he yeah. knew them, he was friends with them and he was composing in a style with them. So it, it does seem, you know, hindsight logical that he would be kind mm -hmm. of next in line to receive it. Whether mm -hmm. or not we now looking at the work, think that this is, you know, the best work of <laughs> 1946 to stand the test of time. Right. And I'd, I'd be interested actually to hear some of his other, well, maybe I'd be interested uh, to hear some of the other non uh, liturgical mm -hmm. or non-church-related uh, music, because those first recognition, he actually had the Chicago Symphony Orchestra play his yeah. violin concerto back in 1913. It's amazing. That's a long time ago. He was pretty young was at young. that time. So uh, that's you know, I like to hear some of these other kinds of pieces and see if he, what his style was like and if it still had that same sound to it. It might be a little bit hard to hear those, though, and that's something we can talk about yeah, the, yeah. the last part. But I think uh, we should go ahead and, and now move on to our first section. Telling the story. All right, so moving on to the background of the piece, uh, Canticle of the Sun is a cantata for chorus of mixed voices with accompaniment for piano or orchestra. And the text is by St. Francis of Assisi, and, of course, Sowerby wrote the music. Uh so a big cantata. We've had another choral work in our repertoire so far, which was the first winner. Yeah, the very first. Yeah. So the William Schumann piece. Uh, do, you, do you find a, a very different kind of sound here very, and a different, different inspiration? Yeah. The first one we talked about how it was really American sounding, right? From yeah. the text of Walt Whitman to even the way that he put the music together. This is, although in English, an English translation, it's a European text, St. Francis of Assisi, and it sounds more European. Yeah, it, it does. It really doesn't sound um, American. Mm -hmm. First performance was at Carnegie Hall uh, in 1945 by the Scola Cantorum. 
And uh, when he won the Pulitzer, this is a great story that uh, he got a telegram from his publisher who said, congratulations, now you'll be harder to sell than ever. (laughs) (laughs) Well. Which ended up being a little prophetic if you think about it uh, as things go. But I've got two reviews um, because the interesting thing about this piece is we don't have much from the archives of the Pulitzer Foundation. No. In fact, uh, the jury report was lost. Uh, The only thing we can find from it was the Carnegie Hall program where it was premiered from 19... 44 or 1945, 1945, season 1944-45. So as as you mentioned, the Scola Cantorum in New York. And on this concert, we had Misa Brevis in F Major by Mozart, The Testament of Freedom by noted American composer Randall Thompson, uh, then Intermission, then Canticle of the Sun, uh, a piece by someone named Leffler, Canticum Fratris Solis, and then Tadeum by Holst, so mm-hmm. big choral orchestral concert. That's a heavy concert. It's, it would be, a, yeah, a lot to sit through, a lot of choral music. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, unfortunately, we don't have anything. It, it, the source has, says, since the jury report is missing in the Pulitzer Prize office at Columbia University, it is impossible to give the names of other finalists in the award category. What we do have, evidently, is the jury. Of course, Chalmers Clifton, yes, who is head of the friend. jury for many, many years. <laughs> he was head of the jury. But uh, what's uh, interesting to me is one of the jurors, evidently, was Aaron Copeland. Mm-hmm. So previous Pulitzer winner. We'll start to see that become a pattern where the previous winners get the next year the opportunity to pick their successors. <laughs> uh, and then Sowerby's good friend, Howard Hansen. Yeah. So we can begin to see that the two previous winners are now picking the next winner, and they're picking a winner who is in line, especially with Howard Hansen, uh, kind of in line with their aesthetic and their thought process, and they're not going to go out into left field, right? They're not going to pull in um, John Cage no, or no, anyone hardly. who is uh, beginning to be active at that time. They're going to pull someone who's more European just because that's their outlook, right? Yeah. Trained in Europe and all those kinds of things. Well, thinking about the piece itself in the... European nature, if you're talking about it, uh, being good friends with Hanson, when we listened to the Fourth, Symf- or, yeah, fourth Symphony, mm-hmm. I didn't feel like that was a particularly European piece, or it still, yeah, it had some influences, but uh, this this one, I could see there's connections, they're both tonal or sort of have tonal bases, but this one is very English sounding. It know. is, but I, I think both of them use a lot of kind of what we typically think of as European compositional devices. Yeah, that's true. And Development and counterpoint. And, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And even, I think, in some ways, the tonal language is similar to what we might expect. But I think you're absolutely right in this case that there is a lot of kind of early 20th century. I mean, putting him next to Holst on a program, like yeah, you were saying, yeah. makes perfect sense to my mind once we have have heard and listened to this. Definitely. And it's, it's dirtier than Hansen. It's grittier. It there's, is. There's a lot more dissonance here yeah. when we were listening to it at, Reminded me of Hindemith in some parts, mm-hmm. or more uh, chordal, quintal kinds of things, so a different sound. Well, here are two, since we don't have the jury report, we've got two reviews, uh, both from later. Um, so both of these come from the 1950s. The first is uh, from a performance given at the Washington Cathedral in 1953. And Sowerby was actually, actually conducting that concert. Uh, and the review in the Washington Times Herald, a man named Glenn Dillard Gunn wrote, <laughs> The composition is both a symphonic and choral masterpiece, in, and in either department, the composer has displayed great originality. The orchestra alone achieves a distinguished symphonic expression in which thematic material of eloquence and significance is developed with complete certainty as to intention. Very positive review, Very positive but you review. forgot to mention 
who Glenn Dillard Gunn, why, why it might be so positive, because he was a friend and mentor of Sowerby. Exactly. So it's a little bit of a biased reading, uh, but he's very, very enthusiastic about mm-hmm. it. Thematic material of eloquence. And then the second review comes from um, Chicago Performance the following year, 1954. And this is the critic in the Chicago Daily News. It says, it is an episodic work, much concerned with tone painting, sun, moon, stars, fire, water, clouds, etc. And Sowerby has used vivid, barbaric colors that may not be altogether in keeping with St. Francis's strong but chaste text. There was a basic vigor about the music, though, and the sounds it made were rich and brilliant. Mm. But I think he points to something that I, I know we're going to get into here in a moment, and that is um, how Sowerby set the text and the importance of the text in constructing this work. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should turn there now. Behind the notes. So I think we will begin by talking about what was going on in the text, uh, because I think Sowerby kind of started with the text and built everything around the structure of the text, the meaning of the text, even the words of the text. So this is a poem, a canticle by St. Francis, and the canticle is divided into five main sections, and you can hear this very clearly even in the way that it's been put together. So there are 11 separate little stanzas, but five large sections. So there's praise for the creator, uh, and that really gets us through the first couple of sections. Then there's praise for the creation, so sun, moon, stars. Then there's praise for the earthly elements, so air, fire, water, and earth. There's praise for life and enduring life's trials, and then praise for death. So those are kind of the, the movement that you go through. And each section is uh, continuous. A piece isn't continuous, but each section is delineated either by um, texture or by tempo or by tonality. So you can hear when you move from section to section. It's pretty obvious. It's all continuous. But it's all continuous, yeah. even though there's some really great cadences between each section. In fact, sometimes that was my favorite part yeah. was the ending of each section. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> So St. Francis of Assisi, I think of as the the one who loved animals right. and talked about that. And that you can see that in the text here as well. Uh, a lot of standard kinds of choral writing here, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, text painting. Uh, it, all those things that you mentioned from the text are really almost low-hanging fruit types of text painting. Yeah, so, it's the kind of stuff you would... So if you think, huh, how would I do fire? That's pretty much what you're going to get. Exactly, exactly. If you exactly. think, how am I going to do water? You get this nice <laughs> flow, right? <That's, laughs> you get those kinds of things that you would expect. There's not much surprise uh, in terms of how he's going to be setting the text. Right. And so with that text, uh, which is kind of talking about all these different things, he does unify the piece musically with... Uh, recurring motives mm-hmm. and key areas and certain devices that keep happening. And this is a, another thing we've seen in previous winners of the prize. Such as Howard Hansen. Such as Howard <laughs> Hansen, exactly. Because the, the beginning comes back at the end. The right, same. Those, those opening bars mm-hmm. uh, form basically two or three motives or kind of split out into a couple of motives that just keep coming back again and again. So maybe we can listen at least to the first couple of uh, measures to get that in our head. So this exact motive comes back at the beginning of a couple of the sections, and then, as you said, at the very end, we come back to the final canticle. It returns and carries us through to the end. So we hear that that little motive again and again and again and again to help give some unity to the sections. Mm-hmm. And I'd say what makes this piece a little challenging, at least for me and I think for you as well, is that it's, it's a little uh, monotonous in mm-hmm. its tempo and 
kind of the density of it. It's it's almost approached as if an organist was writing it, and yeah. in fact, it is an organist. And uh, it, it's I saw I read in the uh, Grove article about Sowerby that he was a huge fan of Cesar Franck, mm. another organist, and who write, writes very dense music. And I could see that here, and so it gets a, a little bit sluggish uh, it does well i listened to it first without the <laughs> score not without looking at the text and the music and then the second time looking at the text and the music and it made much more sense because i could see where everything was happening and sometimes i couldn't hear those little minutiae mm. of what he was doing it was much easier to see it on the page yeah and it's almost like he is sitting at an organ and he goes and i need woodwinds and so he pulls out the woodwind stop and you hear <laughs> woodwinds and then he goes okay i'm done with that and he pushes that stop and he's like and now i need more strings and so you get this block of texture that comes in and there's not the kind of oh, just going back to our last episode when we we're talking about aaron copeland and just the transparency of his texture and the interesting colors because right. of the different combinations he makes you don't get really get that with sourby no no and it's it's a lot of the very as i say it's very dense and Looking through at the score here, there's no key signatures. That's something mm -hmm. we, the other the predecessors had key signatures. Mm -hmm. I think even Schumann might have. Uh, so, looking more of a pitch centric piece or based on intervals, uh, the tritone mm -hmm. is very prominent here. That makes sense because uh, there's a lot of symmetrical sonorities. We heard some uh, whole tone stuff in here. Maybe I don't know if there's octatonic, uh, but it, it's a little bit more adventurous harmonically and kind of s meandering chromaticism. Oh, it is, absolutely. And you get these moments where there's huge pedal points just to kind of help ground you. Mm -hmm. uh, so we'll listen to a little bit of the beginning of uh, movement eight, which is the Mother Earth <laughs> movement. And you'll hear this huge kind of hit of the pedal point and then this growth out. So, and it was one of those things that we listened to and we went, hmm, he's been listening to his Wagner. Yes. So <laughs> let's listen a little bit of that. I would say the most interesting parts to me are the fast sections mm -hmm. and where it gets a little bit more active uh, and there is some some nice woodwind writing. I remember There's some really beautiful oboe lines. Yeah, oboe lines, and some back, flute yeah. solos, things like that are, are well done. Uh, but a lot of times they get swallowed because of mm -hmm. this density. That you, you almost, oh, there's an oboe playing now. Oh, okay, okay, but now I just hear the choir in four parts and the orchestra is just sawing away. It's hard to tell. Uh, but, yeah, it, it, there's yeah, the, some cli a lot of climaxes, but it just doesn't seem to, I don't know. Well, he climaxes and then goes and Then it goes right back again, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll say the other movement, um, if I was going to pick and choose, we enjoyed the... I enjoyed that eighth uh, movement that we just listened to. Yeah. It's also the third movement, which is the beginning of the this the kind of creation. So it's the sun. Mm -hmm. And it's light on its feet, it's in triple, it flows. That to me was one of the more successful of the of the movements. But you get these moments where it's like, aha. And there those are the moments where it seems light on its feet. Yeah. And then it kind of falls back into almost dirge-like. <laughs> ponderous. It, it really yeah. is. Ponderous <laughs> is a great word to kind of describe uh, the experience of listening to it. How do you think you'd feel if you were a singer in this piece? Do you think it would be fun as a choral member to sing? I think the... it would be. Yeah. I mean, there's enough, uh, just because of the text painting, mm -hmm. doing those types of things I would think would be fun. Um, 
but even in that, it seems that it's more of a symphonic composition than it is mm. a choral composition. Right. It, it's just kind of how it strikes me that it's, he was more interested in this case in what was going on in the, the instrumentation than the voice. And the voice is there to communicate the text, and they have some interesting little things, but a lot of the great and more interesting musical lines actually belong in the orchestra. Yeah, I think so too. It's a little Wagnerian in some yeah, ways, is. more listen to the music. But yeah, it's uh, sadly not performed that often, and that's we can move into the uh, next section here and our favorite part of the hit or miss. Hit or miss. So we we had a hard time finding this piece, a recording of it, mm-hmm. uh, it because I, I believe the one we found is really the first recording in many, many years. Yeah, uh, we know that, like I said, with the uh, reviews, that in the 1950s it had a few performances, and then it kind of disappeared. And we were looking around and found on the Northwestern University website in their archives, they have Sowerby's papers. If you want to go see the first page of the manuscript, and we can link to it from our website, but they even mentioned that when they went to do a performance just about 10 years ago, the Grant Park Orchestra had to come to the archives to get <laughs> parts. They could find a full score like we found in the library, but to get parts to be able to play it, it's just, yeah. it's one of those that has almost completely disappeared. Probably of the ones that we've looked at, it's the most obscure so far. Mm-hmm. And why do you think that is? Because it seems to, at least people we talked to, I mean, we found a dissertation mm-hmm. uh, written by Bryce Gerlach. Uh, who wrote about it? We found we have we know we have a former student who is a huge choral person and mm-hmm. loves this piece and loves Sowerby. Why do you think it's just gone into oblivion for the rest of us? Well, even if you go back to the Schumann that we focused on the very first uh, episode of the podcast, that piece and this piece are for orchestra and chorus, and that's a lot of people to get together. Right. If you look at something like the Appalachian Spring or the Hansen, you look at pieces like that. And they're just for our symphony orchestra, so it's a little bit easier to find a group to play them. I think part of the problem is just getting a group together to mm. perform this piece because it requires a lot, and it's 30 minutes long. Yeah. And if you look at the... So say you're a choral conductor and you're in uh, an educational setting, well, you're going to lean more towards um, a work that is more in the standard repertoire to help teach your students something. Than Mozart this Requiem. You do the Mozart Requiem. Yeah. You do the, the Brahms Requiem, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to do one of those big kind of choral... Um, masterpieces. And if you're going to do something in the United States, you're going to lean more something like maybe Bernstein's Jesus or Psalms. Oh, or, sure. Right. Yeah. There are other works that fit in here that I think are um, more accessible and more teachable. Whereas I don't know what you would get out of this by doing it in an educational setting. Yeah. 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 Because that's a big place where a lot of this music will right. get played and continued and passed on. So. And Sowerby's name, like we were saying at the very beginning, Sowerby's name is not big enough. So you put him on a performance at a, a regional or mm. national symphony orchestra and they say come our big work tonight is leo sowerby <laughs> you have a problem trying to sell it to the audience and i think that also is another strike against it yeah in terms of longevity doesn't have the ring of uh, come see mozart's requiem tonight and that will that'll pack the crowd in so or a- yeah. any work with a composer that someone has a name recognition with right because you would have to build your entire program around this work just because yeah. of the size of it it's so long and the forces exactly yeah so uh, yeah unfortunately we, we don't have any other comparison we can't really say what else would have won or we don't have any other way to to put it in its context but uh of the ones we've seen so far and studied so far how does this fit in 
Oh, of the four? This yeah. Is, this is at the bottom so far. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely at the bottom. <laughs> so there really wasn't much else going on in 1945, was there? Yeah, well, it's the end of the war. Yeah. And so I think that that probably played a part in the amount of compositions that were coming uh, out that year, being published and performed for the first time in 1945. Um, so there's just not much competition, I think, in mm. terms of, of what would have been chosen. So it's hard to talk about what would have been the also ran for the 1946 Pulitzer just because um, they're not a bunch of pieces that just spring to mind. No, no. So... We're sorry if you love the music of Leo Sowerby and this is your favorite piece, but uh, we we understand why it won. I think because mm-hmm. it had he had he was well connected, and you need one of these big pieces at the time because the ones that had won so far were all large, thirty minute plus pieces. That's and, true. They did want to seem to award weighty pieces. Yeah, weighty pieces, and this is certainly that with the text and the music and the whole musical mm-hmm. production. So. We understand why it won. I think in today's, uh, looking back on it, I, it doesn't really hold up particularly well, at least f- as far as I'm concerned. I tend to agree with you on that one. <laughs> Some, sometimes it's uh, exciting to find a hidden gem, but I think on this this time it was didn't quite strike that chord for us. Best to let that sleeping dog lie. <laughs> that's right. So. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where we also find links and a short bibliography. You can read the little bit that we've been able to find about Leo Sowerby's Canticle of the Sun. But be sure to join us for next episode. We'll be discussing a, a little-known composer, uh, a little person named Charles E. Ives and his third symphony. Uh, until then, keep listening. <laughs>